Well, once again, good morning. Um, Why palm branches? It's one of those interesting uh, parts of the story of Jesus that we just kind of assume, but we're not really sure why. Uh, There are, I mean, a couple of times in the Hebrew Bible that palm branches get mentioned in kind of a vaguely celebratory way, but it they're not that big of a deal. Um, In in other words, when the people get palm branches and wave them, they're not fulfilling any kind of prophecy. There's no expectation that the Messiah will come with palm branches being waved. Which means, as readers of the Bible, and as scholars, and pastors, and teachers, and thinkers, or whatever, we have to stay we have to take a few steps back and go, what were they thinking? Like, not in a bad way, but just in a, why would they do that? Now, on the one hand, I mean, if you saw somebody walking down the street and there were a group of people waving, I don't, I can't remember what trees go around here, I'm still kind of new, but I don't know, maple branches or whatever, uh, with leaves on them and they were waving them and, and kind of as they were passing by, Intuitively, we would think something special is happening and that something special is happening centering around that person, right? Like, even though we as people have no real precedent, no real expectation, the gist of it is pretty obvious. If I were to tell you that there was a Jewish festival, not Passover, that involved things like celebration for the king to come, the waving of uh, palm branches, speaking about uh, God's temple being the light of the world, um, God's temple being the source of living water. Would that sound familiar? Those are all ways, with the exception of the water part, that point or reference Jesus in the readings that we heard today. See, there was another feast within the Jewish calendar, or there is because it's still celebrated today, that occurs in the fall. It's kind of a a harvest festival aside from many other things called Sukkot. And the uh, festival of Sukkot, sometimes the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Uh, was on the one hand a harvest festival, but it also commemorated when God's people had to live outside after God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And over time, it evolved into this big celebration, essentially a big party. And if you could, it was one of the pilgrimage festivals, so you would come and celebrate it in Jerusalem, and you would build a little... it's a sukha, uh, or you would build sukhot, uh, that's the plural. And so it'd be like camping with two to 300,000 of your closest friends and family. And it would be a massive celebration involving light emanating from the temple, celebrating that God is the light of the world and God is the source of living water and all of that. Included in that is the waving and dancing and using of things called lulav or lulavim plural. 
those would be palm branches. And apparently the celebration got so rowdy that the ancient sages and rabbis had to put down some rules regarding the use and handling of these palm branches, these lulavim, because they would get handed out and everyone would be so excited. I kid you not, this is in the Mishnah, second century Jewish text, that they would start hitting each other with them. Which is why the joke is, is you know, uh, I heard Bob handing out the, uh, the palm branches saying you can hit and tickle your sister with these and stuff like that. It's just like, man, something is, some things just never change. <laughs> it's amazing. And so it seems like not only Jesus and the way he talks about himself after, but in that moment the people are melding two festivals. The first is Sukkot, which is, has a lot of messianic overtones. Again, God's presence being the light of the world, God being source of living water, or water that flows, blessing the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hitting people with palm branches, that kind of thing. And on the other hand, everyone is in Jerusalem, not for Sukkot, that's not going to be for another several months, but to celebrate that their ancestors were once slaves in Egypt, and God gave them these Passover lambs, and with the blood of the lamb, they are set free from slavery, and they left Egypt, and God gave them the law. It seems like these concepts concepts are all melded together and then layered on top of each other. It would be like in a week when we celebrate Easter Sunday, the great resurrection Sunday, it would be like y'all coming to church with tinsel and handing out gifts and maybe just to the side, setting up a little manger scene or something like that. We're still celebrating Easter, but we're starting to blend some ideas. Because we're, in that case, we would be like emphasizing that God's Son enters into creation and takes on humanity and ultimately in Resurrection Sunday defeats death. It'd be like, you know, combining those topics. Now, by the way, if you have ever taken it upon yourself to read the book of John, uh, this is why reading John can be very frustrating. Because you read it, and even subconsciously, you kind of can tell that there's a lot going on here, but, you pro- but, but it's really hard to get. So it, it just causes this like weird internal frustration. At least it does for me. So anyway... Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And as you might imagine, this is a big deal. And word spreads, and the religious elite began to get very nervous because of that popularity. And because it's about to be Passover, when everyone's going to be thinking about rescue and restoration anyway. 
And so Jesus is on his way. He makes his way to Jerusalem, Bethany, where he raised Lazarus. It's just a couple miles from Jerusalem. So word's going to spread. Everybody is in Jerusalem anyway, so word is spreading even faster. And I would, I would pay a lot of money to know who, got the, who, who picked up that first branch. And apparently other people do too. And Jesus rides on his donkey, a very royal symbol, but a symbol of peace, uh, echoing uh, the, the minor prophets, uh, Zechariah specifically. And he's going towards Jerusalem, and then they start saying, Lord, save us, Hoshiana, and, and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and this is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he, he's, he's coming to Jerusalem, and it's Passover Something is happening here. There's an excitement, an expectation, even though we may not be sure of what that expectation is. Have you ever felt that, that, that moment, that vibe within a, a large crowd where you don't really know what's happening, but something's happening and, and it feels good? And then Jesus enters Jerusalem while the religious elite are losing their minds because in their words, the whole world is going after him. Embedded in that statement is also, and we are being left behind. People don't like to be left behind. I don't like to be left behind. People don't like to be the only ones in the group that don't get it. I personally, I hate that. I, I get fear of missing out, FOMO, a lot. But it's also kind of their fault. Because they're not willing to give up what they've held dear to themselves. And so Jesus gets into Jerusalem and John very, very specifically and intentionally mentions that Greeks are coming non-Jews, who probably are interested in this whole God thing, but uh, are not ethnically Jewish, but they're there probably for Passover, and, and they come looking for Jesus. Again, echoing, the whole world is coming after him. Have you ever noticed that the whole world continues to go after him? I know in the U.S. there's a lot of, um, in the Western world really, uh, well, I would say the U.S., Canada, and Europe, because in South America it's very different. But uh, there, there's a little fear, or a lot of fear actually, going around socially, especially within Christian circles, because we feel like all the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and nobody's going to church anymore, as if they did in the first place. We're just lying to ourselves. And... And, and we, we have this feeling that we as Christians are losing our place in society. Um, that's a very ethnocentric view. I've used this statistic before. Uh, within our denomination, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there are, are about 2 million members, give or take, maybe a little more. There are about 8 million Lutherans in Madagascar. Uh, the, the, the average Christian 
worldwide is a person of color and female. The Jesus is, and his church are, is exploding in South America, in the country, many countries of Africa. There are untold numbers of Christians in China, literally untold. We can't know who they are. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Why? Why would we do that? Well, when these Greeks come, they, they track down one of Jesus' disciples, and then his disciple grabs another disciple, passing the buck. You love to see it. And that's a joke, by the way. And um, they come to Jesus, and they say, hey, there's some Greeks here looking for you. And of course, Jesus being Jesus doesn't actually address that. But he says a seed must, must, die, must be planted and die. You have the light a little while longer. You find yourself going, why would he say that? Well, on the surface, everybody is celebrating Jesus. They have a vague sense of who he is. They don't understand exactly what he's about to do. Because when Jesus says, I have to be lifted up, that's John's way of saying crucified. His disciples, uh, John tells us very specifically, they don't really understand it, uh, what he means. But Jesus is being celebrated. Everything has happened publicly. Like this is the all-time high moment for Jesus' career as far as following and popularity. From my perspective... Of a, so the perspective of a guy in 2023, this is everything Jesus would want. The top of your career, your biggest moment in your life. What would that look like for you? Whatever it is you do, what would your best moment look like? Would you be popular? Would you be um, wealthy with a great reputation, lots of friends and family, a large bustling family if you come from a more traditional culture often? Like, what would that look like? Being honored and recognized for your contributions to whatever it is that you do. What would that look like? Because that's the moment that Jesus is in right now. And this entire time, Jesus knows that the clock is now ticking. He has a week. He has a week, and then it's over. He will enjoy this popularity or this level for about a week. He's going to ride that high for a few days. He's going to have this dinner with his disciples, which we will um, talk about and commemorate on Thursday. Knowing that the clock is about to run out, and then he is going to go out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And it really, I mean, there's, there's kind of the question of where's the point of no return? I think it's when he's arrested. He's going to lose everything. And then he's going to lose even a little more. I think right there, in that moment, 
as Jesus rides that high into his final hours, just makes Jesus literarily and historically very attractive. It's a neat story. Somebody so singularly focused on what they have to accomplish that even at that highest moment, Jesus is still explaining and teaching and preparing his disciples for when he is going to lose everything and he's going to do that willingly. That, that, that's, a, just, that's a good character. And yet Jesus is more than that. This isn't just a story. John is a good writer, but this is beyond literature. Jesus, or excuse me, the whole world is going after Jesus because all of this stuff happened. That Jesus is and was that seed that falls into the ground and outsprouts something nobody saw coming. Jesus is this actual human being that is also fully divine. Don't try to figure that out. It's impossible. That is, is melding all of these different stories, these different festivals into this one singular moment where he is the light of the world. He is the source of living water. He is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. He is this seed that is dropped into the ground causing his death. He is the one who is lifted up. He is the lamb who is slaughtered, whose blood on the doorposts signifies that the people inside of that house belong to God, who gives up his life for, that, for their sake, whose blood then and through the prophet Moses leads the people out of slavery, only it's not like political and social slavery, it's slavery to ourselves and the darkness within us. And then in that final moment, which nobody sees coming, he's the one who pulls all that together, and in his death, death is defeated. This is the beginning of Holy Week. Over the next several days, we will remember some of those key moments. Monday, Thursday, noon and 7 o'clock. Good Friday, noon and 7 o'clock. And Resurrection Sunday, 8.15 and 11 o'clock with a party in the middle. Because if we're going to celebrate anything, I'm trying to figure out how to say what I'm going to say without using celebrate eight times. <laughs> Commemorate, yeah, it's the same thing, man. Because everything that I've talked about up until this point, none of it matters unless that tomb is empty. This is just a nice story, unless Jesus walked out of that tomb three days later. Forgiveness and restoration and redemption of our own hearts and the evil within us is a nice thought, and only a nice thought, unless that tomb is empty, in which case it is our reality. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.